0: realize that they probably deserved it more than you did. If you really ever find yourself in the presence of the Lord, you'll realize that he's the only one that deserves. Because even on my best day, I failed when I was at my best, I still was worse than somebody or something else. There's nobody like Jesus. No one deserves the glory but God. No. we can come to that conclusion, make up in our mind, we're not going to give it to anybody else but the Lord. Then God could take us and use us to do the right things. Because He was very clear in His Word, I'll not give my glory to another. Everything He's done in this world, He did it in such a way that flesh couldn't glory in His presence. If he left the door open for you to be able to make it into heaven of your own merits. Then somebody somewhere along the way could stand up and say, I deserve this reward. When all of us realize that we're hopeless without a Savior, that we're not going to take glory for something that we could never earn, never deserve. My, my, my such a good God. I can't speak for anybody but myself, but I know I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve the Lord's mercy. I've abused it too many times. I've failed it too many times is so thankful. He is who he is. He deserves all glory. And if you have your Bibles tonight, you'd like to go with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Uh, we've kind of been hanging out here a little bit for the past couple of weeks. But I believe by design, these lessons are the structured in the way that they are is what they disclose right into the other. We talked about who Jesus is. We talked about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talked about our response to the gospel. What happens to you after you respond to it? When we talked about the fact that you're born again of the water and the spirit, then then what happens? Now this preacher tells you all the time, this is the beginning, this is the starting point. What are you supposed to do the rest of your days? Acts chapter two verse thirty eight, very familiar scripture that Peter said unto them, "Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words, because he's a preacher, with many other words." Did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they, that gladly received his word, were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That's a big group of people. And they, same group, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, sold their possessions and goods, parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, the same day, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. But who is this group? Who is this they that the Scripture keeps talking about? We know it's not just the apostles anymore. It's not just the, the 120 that were gathered there in the upper room. But who is they? The Bible says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Tonight we're going to talk for a little while about that marvelous, sometimes mysterious and wonderful thing that when Jesus put away, he left behind, and it's not just the Holy Ghost, but it is the church, the living God. Would you lift up your hands and voices and praise the Lord. God, we love you, Jesus. Oh, we thank you for your blessings, for your power, for your spirit. We thank you for the privilege that we have tonight to be in your presence. Lord, we ask you, strengthen us, bind us together into one body. Lord, and do your mighty works through the church of the living God. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Maybe seat and thank you for standing in the work of the Lord. Tonight we're we'll going to talk about something that is a key component of your salvation. Now, you might think we, we covered all of that last week when we talked about the plan of salvation. We talked about the, the response to the gospel and, and what it means we respond to the gospel and being born again in the water of the Spirit. You learned what we learned by reading again in verse 38 that what we're supposed to do is to repent of our sins. We're supposed to be baptized in Jesus' name and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But that is just the beginning. Yes. That is just your birthday, because of God's not done with you, when He saved you. Right. God saved you for a purpose. Yes. He didn't just save you to keep yes. you from hell, but He saved you to live a different life in this world, and a different life that we can't even imagine in the world that is to come. Yes. He saved you for more things than just being kept out of the devil's hell. When he filled you with the Holy Ghost, he transformed your life forever. Remember that when you started for God, the first two things that you must do in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they both come from you. They're things that you have to do. You have to repent of your sins. You have to turn away from your wickedness. You have to make up in your mind, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I want to be a different man. I want to be a different woman. And in addition to that, you also have to have someone baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. If you're not buried in water by immersion in the name of Jesus Christ, your salvation is not done. That's right. Amen. You've just been moved on, you've just repented, you've just turned over and new leave. But he don't want you to turn it over and then leave, he wants you bury it. He wants you to bury it in the name of Jesus Christ. But after you do those things, after you respond in obedience to the word of God, God responds to you. And when you have repented of your sins and been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It is a promise. He makes sure everybody understands that? In the next verse, it is a promise of God unto you, and not just to you, but to every single man and woman that will ever hear the message and respond to it in obedience. God will fill them with the Holy Ghost. And then His work gets started. Then God gets to work on your life. Because you're not just baptized into the name of Jesus. You're not just baptized in water in the name of Jesus. But when you are born again of the water and born again of the Spirit, you are also baptized into a church. And I'm not talking about foresight, apostolic church on 71 in Time Road. I'm talking about the church. There's only one. in on all the earth, regardless of what anybody puts out by the road, regardless of what's on the letter, hand the business card, there is just one church that God knows anything about. There's one church that He came and died to create. We were created a church on the day of Pentecost. The Lord wanted to make sure they weren't low on attendance or anything. So, in in one day there were 3,000 souls that were baptized in the name of Jesus and filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And God started the church with a bang. Now, we we talked a little bit about the church very early on in in these these courses uh, when we started last year, sometime, sometime in the fall. Uh, but we're going to talk more about it tonight. So, so what is the church? And that's what this whole lesson is about, what in the world is he going to stand up there and talk for that? All about what is the church? The first point in your book, number one: Jesus Christ gave His life to create the church. A lot of those we like to think He just gave His life for me and for you, and He did, and He did it for all of us at the same time so that we would become the church. He gave his life to create the church. It is the body of Christ, the called out assembly of people who follow him. And members of his body are in covenant with God and with one another. You ever heard that phrase you use, don't marry a girl, you marry a family? whether you like it or not, you're going to grandma's house at Christmas. And whether they like you or not, you're in the family. you made that choice. Whenever you are born again in the water of the Spirit, God then creates you a little Holy Ghost bubble that you can float around in the world in until Jesus comes. If you're going to make it, you're going to make it in the church. Right. There was a preacher a long time ago that made the statement. He said, if God... I mean, if the church is not your mother, then God is not your father. Because you were born into the church. We are in covenant not just with God, but with one another. Now, we me to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, and the first verse i read to you, and it probably didn't sound like this to them either, doesn't really sound like it has anything to do about the church. But that's entirely what it's about. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherisheth it even as the Lord of the church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. What, what, what do these verses tell us that Jesus did? Because he loved the church. It says that he gave himself for it. What kind of church does he want to present? What kind of church does Jesus want to present? He wants to present a church that's glorious, that's clean, that's holy, and that's righteous. So why why do you think tonight that the scripture compares the relationship of Jesus and the church... To a husband and wife. So think about it, husbands. Think about it, wives. What is a husband supposed to do for their life? They're supposed to provide for them, they're supposed to protect them, they're supposed to be strength for them when they are weak. He, he's supposed to create a safe and loving confidence between the two of them, a good relationship. He is supposed to be faithful to them. He's supposed to put his wife before himself. You know, that means if there's only enough food for one little plate, you may eat it. They're supposed to leave them Now, some men don't like to go there. Right. Some men like to think they just live in their own different spheres. And I just go to work and she does all this other stuff. And, you know, the 20s shall never be. But that's a bunch of Bible right? Because that's not what's in there. Yes. Yes. We're supposed to lead our wives. Because it's part of our responsibility to lead them to God. Amen. Us men folk, yes. you those of you that are married, those of you that ain't married, you got you to got pass If you're married, that's most of you. We're supposed to lead them to God. Not the other way around. We're supposed to be a godly example to them and a godly example to our children. But doesn't God do all of those things for us? Is he not our strength when we are weak? Does he not provide for us when nobody else will provide for us? Does he, he not remain faithful to us no matter what happens what may? Does he not to prefer us over himself? I mean, after all, he did die for us. He did hang there on the cross while we rejected him and still give his life for the church. Now, it's It's easier for us to get a better understanding of what God is to us. You know, we we can understand that stuff the husband's supposed to do towards the wife, and we see that God does that for us. But what are we supposed to be to Him? If we are the bride of Christ, which means we are His wife, we are His betrothed, He's coming back for us. He's not coming back for the world. When he comes back and the rapture takes place, he's not even coming down here to set his foot on the earth. When he comes back to set his foot on the earth, he's coming to judge it. When he comes and stays up there in the sky somewhere, and it calls us to be with him, it's because we are his beloved. And he's come to get us, to take us home with him, to bury us. So, what are we supposed to be to him? You know, Look at Titus chapter 2. It gives us a little insight into that, that answer. Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul writes, But speak thou of the things which become sound doctrine. Now when you hear that word, sound doctrine, I, you probably immediately think the oneness of God and receiving the Holy Ghost from the evidence of speaking in other tongues. You think about Acts chapter 2 verse 38. Sound doctrine. What do you got to do to be saved? What do you got to, you know, make sure that your life is clean and holy? And he says, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, and that there is a colon, which means he's about to tell you about what that sound doctrine is. That the aged men be sober, brave, and temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and in basis but that he's not done. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet and chaste and keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now isn't it interesting here that there's one verse about the husband and there's three really long ones about the wives. It's not written this way because the women are more difficult to get to listen than you men. He said, You need to teach sound doctrine. Are true for both sides of the fence, both the husband and the wife. Are true there in the marriage relationship. We also understand that every time God starts talking about marriage, He's got us in mind. Oh, yes. Every lesson He ever teaches us in, in that, that husband and wife relationship is intended to to push deep roots inside of us of an understanding of how He feels about us, His church. Yes. Oh, yes. And so, how are we're supposed to respond to Him. We're supposed to be in behavior that's become holiness. Right. Not false accusers and given them much wine and teachers of good things. We're to teach the young women to be sober. We're to be sure to teach everybody that comes in the church yeah. how to be a part of the church, right. to love their husbands. Where else are you going to learn how to love God? Right. To love their children, to love everybody else to get filled with the Holy Ghost. To be discreet and chaste, keepers at home and good, obedient to their own husbands. that the word of God be not blasphemy. All of these things, those things are foundational to a strong family. If, if we're dropping the ball, if you're dropping it, women, if you're dropping it, children, if you're dropping it, if we're dropping the ball out of those scriptures, it erodes the foundation of our home. We build a strong family based on those principles in our family. But the Bible tells us that the church is a family. It's a family. There are no stepchildren in the family,
1: there
0: are no You're washed in and filled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Which means you're all blood, folks. When you're filled with the Holy Ghost, we are a family of God. Ephesians 3 and 14, Paul writes, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what I'm praying for, church. He says, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Can you believe that you've got relatives in heaven? I know we're made a little bit lower than the angels, but the same spirit that's inside of him is living inside of us. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with light by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye be rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Yes. Now here's the scripture that you get to hear all the time. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all the ages, world without end. Amen. Do you want to know how God does exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think? The word says it. It's according to the power that works in us unto His glory in the church for all ages. If you want to be healed, you've got to be in the church. If you want to be delivered from sin, you've got to be in the church. If you want to make it from here to glory, you've got to be a part of the family God. You must be a part of the church. It is. We are living in a day where this has been corrupted to a greater degree than we even think about at times. Because we're living in a day where churches don't, don't have to even foster this whole idea of a family any longer. Because all we've got to do is pipe the end your live stream. I'm not talking about us pipe the live stream for somebody that can't come to church because they're sick. I'm talking about churches that have never laid eyes on their pastor in flesh and blood. Right. They go to the building and they watch it on a TV screen just like they can go home and watch it on a TV screen. They don't know the pastor. They don't really know the staff. They really don't even know each other. They show up on a Sunday morning. They enjoy the music just like turning on the radio. They enjoy the message because it does something inside of them. It makes them feel better about themselves. And they go home unchanged. That is not God's model for the church. Amen. I didn't come to preach about you techniques and, and your methods and models and all that stuff. i just come to tell you, you can't serve God without the church. Amen. Amen. We should never be deceived by the enemy of our soul in thinking we can live all by ourselves out there on an island. And I'm not talking about staying home. I'm talking about folks that could come in the doors and sit on the pews for a decade and be completely disconnected from the body of Christ. It's not the will of God, and you're not going to make it to heaven. If you want to make it to heaven, you've got to be a part of the family of God. Amen. Weird uncles and everything. You got to be a part of the family of God. It really should explain a whole lot about us when we put it in the context of a family, because this family of God is made up of the same material that your family's made up of. It's made up of people like you and people like them. And there are people that you love to be around. You love to hear their stories, you love to tell them jokes, you love to spend time with them, Mm -hmm. and then there's people in your family that you really hope didn't see the email or the Facebook invite to come to the reunion because they get on your last nerve. You really prefer they not come. If they do come, you sure don't want them sitting by you. You wish they'd just sit on the other end of the porch and not bother you. Sometimes you might feel that way about people in the church but you better get through it. Yeah. And you better get over it because we're family. Yeah. And as the old saying goes, blood is thicker than water. Yeah. That must be why Jesus shed his blood because they've been baptized for generations and nobody filled with the Holy Ghost but when they were born again of the water and of the Spirit when they were washed in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It became a family. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing to think about. And many of you have experienced this time and again in your life. It, it, it's just it's uncanny. You can be halfway across the country. You see somebody that you clearly recognize because for the most part they're dressing holy and not many folks do that anymore. And you figured out there, there's a 98% chance they're the same as you. Yes, right. And so sometimes you, you strike up a conversation and you ask them that question: Are you Amen. are you agnostic? Are you Pentecostal? Where do you go to church? And then you discover that you're the same, right. and then you start acting like you actually do each other. Most there's church people that I've been separated from maybe for fifteen or twenty years, and I see them, and it's like I saw them yesterday. There's something inside of us that is the same. It's not that human love that's coursing through our veins. It's the spirit of a God who died on the cross and filled us with his Holy Ghost. It is that same spirit inside every one of us that knits us together. It was was something revolutionary in the day of the book of Acts. It was unheard of for any kind of organization to have brought together and Gentiles and then God forbid Samaritans but it is. it has been said I don't know how to prove it but I have heard it said before that one of the reasons the New Testament doesn't use a lot of last names is because in Jewish culture your last name meant what tribe you came from and generally meant your social standing as well and so it was quickly gotten rid of in the New Testament church because it didn't matter. The only thing that mattered is that you repented of your sins. And had you been baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Because if you were, if you are, then you're family. That's what you were born into.
1: But because our
0: families are made up of people like you, right, we have to work particularly hard sometimes Number two, we're going to talk about living in unity. Living in unity. The church is made up of humans, human beings, flawed and in need of grace. Even though Jesus has transformed our lives, we still experience conflict and hurt. And God intends this church to pursue peace and unity. It would be nice if it just happened. Now, some things do just happen. You can have brotherhood in a moment. Any of y'all that have had brothers before knows that that's a shaky relationship. At times you know, one minute you're fighting for each other, but the next minute you're trying to kill each other. It happens in the church too. But we have to be committed to pursuing unity. First Corinthians, chapter twelve. Be with me there, if you would. There will be a lot of 1 Corinthians, so if you have trouble keeping up in the scriptures, if you hang around there, you will be all right. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 25 says that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care. The same care, one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. So what should not be in the body of Christ? Schism. There should never be division. There should never be a break in the body of Christ. It's no wonder that there was prophecy to this effect and it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ that not a bone of his body Unity. That we get those flesh wounds healed before there can ever be division in the body. How should we care for each other? As we care for our sins. There should never be an instance in this church of someone starving to death for lack of food. Either nobody starves, or we all starve. There should never be an instance of somebody, one of our brothers and our sisters, living out on the street corner all by themselves. While I'm in my house when it's 34 degrees, staying warm. Either we're all cold, or we're all warm. Because I'm supposed to have the same care for you, as I do for myself. I should be just as happy about you getting a new car as I am about me getting a new car. That's a good doctrine right there, folks. I should be just as happy when you get a raise as when I get a raise. I should be just as happy when you get healed when I don't get healed. Because we're all better if somebody gets healed. Let me to the at Matthew, chapter 18. Because the Lord, because He's God, knows everything. He knows that there's going to be times when we have to deal with hurts and offenses and conflicts and all that stuff. So he told us how to deal with it. So Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to read briefly part of verse 15 then I'm going to go back just a little bit because I want to point something out. Verse 15 is normally where you would immediately go to if you want to find out, okay, how do I deal with conflict in the church? Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy So we know that's where it starts. Conflict resolution 101 in the church. But I want to go back to verse 12 because this is where the thought starts. It doesn't start really right here in verse 15. Verse 12 says, how think ye? How do you think? If a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, Doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he findeth, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's just tell me? That God is more concerned about restoring one that has become separated from the body than he is from stroking the body that's already there. I'm not saying he don't care about the body. The shepherd knows that the 99 are safe where they are because he put them there. He knows where to leave the sheep. He knows what they can handle He knows what they can deal with, but God's foremost concern is getting back the thing that has now gone missing from the body, the sheep that has now gone missing from the flock, and now he rejoices more because of the one that he found than the 99 that stayed there. Why is that? Because we're supposed to have the same care one for another, and if one of us hurt, we all hurt. So I know it's just one out of 99. I know 99 still came to church on Sunday morning, and there was just one that laid out. But it should matter to us they're not God. It should matter to us they're not alive. I don't care if they deserve it. I don't care if they had it coming. I don't care if they did every dumb thing under the sun. They're our brother. They're our sister. And we better be touching heaven until we get them restored. Because the Lord said the shepherd's going after the sheep uh, that has gotten away from the flock. Amen. Why is that? Because the sheep that is away from the flock is a sitting duck. Yes. Right? He is the thing that the lion, the enemy of your soul, the devil, is walking about seeking whom yeah. he may devour. You shall loose on earth it shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done of them of my Father which is in heaven. He's not just talking about just walking around on the earth and biting things and loosening things just because I, you know, get that spiritual tingle and so feel like oh, out that Holy Ghost six years and something about He said, When you do this, When you are following my word to restore someone to the body, when you are working through this to get your brother and get your sister unoffended and get them back where they need to be with me, he said, whenever you agree on this thing, whenever you work together in this way, whenever you come together for this purpose, I'm going to be right in the middle. I'm going to be right in the middle. There's times we need to come together and agree. By the Lord, we've got a brother that's lost. We've got a sister that's lost. We're asking you right now to keep your hand on We're asking you right now to move in that situation. We're asking you right now, God, do whatever it takes. And the Lord said, if we will agree on these things, I'll be right there in the middle and I'll put my stamp before you. We need to start making hell be afraid to go after one of the Lord's sheep. Because hell needs to know that when they start messing with a sheep it's has to wake on the
1: flock, the flock's coming, and when the flock comes, the shepherds coming with the authority of God and he'll back up
0: what we do to restore sheep. to him. I think I should write him up one day entitled NK Peter and said Lord it's still the whole same conversation here. How should my brother sin against me and I forgive him until seven times he's asking okay so how far do I have to go how long do I have to put up with it how long do I have to endure how many times do I have to forgive my brother And Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. He basically means Peter, stop counting
1: and just keep
0: forgiving. Because your brother is worth more than the issue. It's more important to be restored than it is to be right. I'm talking about, I don't care if they sat in a pew, I don't care if they said something mean, I don't care if they did this or they did that, I know they shouldn't have done it, you're right, they're wrong, but I am telling you, it's more important to get that brother and sister back to an altar and get Jordan their relationship right than it is for you to be right. Lord's will tell you that you were all yeah. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, to remain divided is simple. He said, "Did not our Lord pray that they may be one, even as we are one. He has a different translation of John 17 and 22. But he says there's a chorus of voices keep harping this unity tune. He said, what they're saying is, Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organization regardless. Unite, unite. And he says, such teaching is false, reckless, and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignment. He says, unity without truth is hazardous. John 17 says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. We are one body because we have one Lord. And we have one faith. And we have one baptism. And there is just one word of God. And in that word of God, God gave us instructions on how to deal with disunity. These instructions are not best practices. They are not preferences. They are not God's best. As some preachers might call. They are the commandments of of God. There is no other way to deal with conflict in the church that God will bless. Think about it for a minute. If you've got a cut on your finger, cut on your finger, where are you going to put the nearest corner in the band-aid? You're not it on the finger, it won't do you any good to put it on your big toe. It's not going to somehow travel up there and fix everything. It's not going to do any good at all. If we try to fix these problems by our own ways, and we have all tried to fix them by our own ways. Yes. It's like putting the band-aid on your big toe. Wow. Think about that the next time you think you're going to fix it some other way. That's what we're doing. Amen. It doesn't work. God's method for maintaining unity always works. It's there because there's going to be offenses for a family. But it also localizes dealing with those offenses. Yes. It makes sure that only the people that have to be involved are, because it keeps to as few as possible those people that need to be dealing with the offense, so that the healing happens fast. If you spread it all around, mess. you spread it all around, it causes disunity in the church. You spend all your time going in 20 other people to agree with you as opposed to getting it right with your brother or your sister. You're causing division in the church. And God, oh, God not only doesn't bless this, but there's some other words that he uses for it. I don't want to be on that end of the day. I want to do what God gave me to do because it works. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I told you you could hang out there tonight. Verse 1 says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, and it sounds like we're going in the left field, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. It's love. If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet, as he's ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is knowing him. As concerning therefore the eating of the There's just one God. And we know that no matter how many statues get made, no matter how many paintings get painted, how many belief systems and religions are out there, there's just one God There's just one source of truth, and you know it. So, he's saying, it's not like the idolaters that took the meat that they had and offered it to that statue. It's not as if the statue had the ability to defile that meat. Because it's not a God. It's not real. It's just a statue. It's just like the figurine on your turio cabinet at your house. It means nothing. So there's no way that the idol, that the false god, defiles any food that you put in front of it. But verse 7 says, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. They don't all have that clarity of understanding. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. He's saying your determination to be right and to sit upon your issue, even though you might be correct, is not worth the harm that it might cause. For if any man see thee which has knowledge, sit and meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols. And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Yeah. What does all that mean? It means... You know that that food being offered to that idol means absolutely nothing. And if you're eating it, you're only eating it because you're hungry, and you know that's a bunch of baloney, and you don't have to be concerned about that food being defiled by some false god that's not real. But there's some other brother that maybe he's, he's walking in the way, but he don't have that knowledge like you do yet. And he feels like, you know, if you go eat that stuff, that that's simple, that, that's wrong, or at least that's what the preacher says. We we are not eating it over to idols because we don't serve idols. But if he sees you eating it, you know you're right. You know there's no sin in eating the meat. But now he sees you doing it, and in his foolishness and in his because my brother's worth more than the thing that I want or me standing on being right. Me being a good example is more important than my convenience and my comfort. There's times that we do things that maybe we don't have to do, but we've got to do it to make sure that nobody else falls in the air. There may be some places that you can go and you can go in your conscience and not be sinning and going to that place. But somebody else won't understand it and they won't be able to add it all up in their heads, and they'll think you're going for the wrong reasons and they'll follow for the wrong reasons. It's not worth it. Because what's worth more is making sure that my brother is Our living in unity Goes beyond simply not being at each other's throats as well. That's what we think about when we think about unity. We think about you know, just not killing each other. You know, my family reunions, right? You probably all had family reunions, and if the police didn't get called, nobody slammed the door and walked out, nobody took their ball and went home, you considered it a success. That's not what God's after. God's not after. Toleration. He wants
1: us to love one another. He wants us to have the same mind, the same heart,
0: and the same spirit. And in addition to that, that means that there's an awful lot of things that we have to agree on. We have to agree on. We don't have to agree on whether Georgia or Georgia Tech are better. We all know that Georgia is better. (laughs) We don't have to agree on whether you can go to heaven if you're a funny fan man or not. It's an easy question to answer. We don't have to agree on sweet tea versus unsweet tea. We don't have to agree on biscuits versus cornbread. We don't have to agree on that stuff because that stuff has no eternal value. Amen. But on things that do, yes. we better be singing the same too. Uh, saying the same things. We've got to come to agreement. If there is but one God, Amen. and the Word says there is one faith and there is one baptism, yes. then we have to believe all those same things together. Yes. Why There are a lot of things in Scripture that if anybody in the world asks any of us the question, You should have the same answer. Well, I know we might say it in different ways. I know we have different personalities. Some of you are going to give the short version. Some of you are going to give the long version. I understand all those things. That's why we have things like Bible study. That's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why we come together for corporate worship. It's so that we know what the Word of God
1: says.
0: So that we know what the truth is. So that when this world comes to us looking for an answer, we've got it. They're not going to get, you can be baptized in two or three different ways. They're going to get, you've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus. They're not going to get, oh, well, you do, you don't have to be filled with the Holy Ghost. They're going to get, you must be filled with the Holy Ghost. God died for you and I. He died for us to become the church. And we are Body of Christ. He wants us to function as well as a healthy, living, breathing body. He wants the wounds healed. He wants anything broken and out of joint. He wants everything in its place doing exactly what he intended for it to do. But it's going to also take that same power of the Holy Ghost to do. Would you stand to your feet? So if you begin to lift up your hands and just give the Lord praise? Let's thank Him for the privilege of being part of the church tonight. Let's give the Lord glory. Let's give Him worship because He died for us so that we can come together as the family of God. Can we worship Him for a few moments?